everyone, welcome to the Naked Security Podcast, episode three. I'm Charlotte Williams, and I'm here with two Sophos experts that you may recognise, or at least their voices anyway, from our Facebook <laughs> Live videos. No, no pictures this time. <laughs> Paul Ducklin and Matt Body. So we're going to start by talking about the PUBG ransomware. Now, Duck, you wrote about this last week. I did. It kind of sounded almost amusing. So what is it all about? Yes, this is ransomware that when it infects your system, scrambles all your files as you expect. And then it says, I don't want money to decrypt your files for free. All you have to do is play this PUBG game. What is it? Player Unknown's Battleground. That's it, precisely, yeah. You're a player, aren't you, Matt? So, uh, yeah, I've got the mobile version of the game, not on my PC. So if I did get hit by this ransomware... You're stuck. I'm, I'd be stuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <'cause> you <laughs> so the idea is, oh, you've got to play this game for an hour and then I'll decrypt your files. Now, this is, a, I believe, the second most popular online game at the moment. It's got zillions of players. There's no suggestion that the game or any affiliate of the people who sell this game have got anything to do with the ransomware. It just seems to be some youngster who went on to GitHub, found some open source ransomware. Yes, there is such a thing. Modified it, recompiled it and issued it kind of as a joke. The problem is that even if it just had a button you could press that would decrypt your files without doing anything else and without needing to figure out how to play this game, it's still wrong to read someone's files without permission and even worse, unauthorized modification to go and change them afterwards. It is on the better side of ransomware, though. As far as ransomware goes, I guess this is one that I prefer to get. You mean, oh, if you had to choose between the Crypto Locker school of ransomware yeah. and the PUBG ransomware? I'd much rather this than Locky. Yes, but that's sort of like, would you like me to kick you on the knee or would you like me to kick you in the head? That's very true. <laughs> Neither, thank you very much. It's a mate, I made you flinch type uh, <laughs> exercise. The, the good news is if you do get infected by this, it seems either the guy took pity on everybody or he released a debugging the test version by mistake. The way it monitors whether you're playing the game or not, you'd have to go and pay £26.99p to download the game in the UK. Uh, you just run any file called tslgame.exe, which is the name of the main program of this game. And it doesn't even make you leave that program running for an hour. After three seconds, it actually does decrypt your files. So in the limited testing I did, I was able to scramble, unscramble, scramble, unscramble perfectly successfully. But the problem is that the error handling in this code is absolutely terrible. It does the, the basic equivalent of on error resume next. So it sort of means that every time there's an error, if something goes wrong while he's reading or encrypting the files, he just plows on regardless. That's really dangerous, isn't it? Absolutely. So if something goes wrong and he actually doesn't scramble the files properly and writes back garbage instead of the encrypted file, then he won't be able to decrypt them later. Bad luck. Thanks for coming. And that's why, yeah, it's as jokes go, it's a pretty unfunny one. So is ransomware like this common? You mean stuff that isn't only about money? Yeah. Not in my experience. It's pretty much the whole ransomware scene for the past few years has pretty much been about unauthorized access, read the files, unauthorized modification, change the files, and then demanding money with menaces, aka blackmail, extortion, standover, whatever you want to call it. Now pay me or else the files get it. So most ransomware is about money. This one overtly isn't. It's unusual to see that. It reminds me of there's one ransomware where you could get the, instead of paying money, you could get the decryption key by infecting two of your buddies. So they had to pay. Oh, and if, it, it's like a referral scheme, except that by throwing your chums under the train, yeah. 
you get off scot-free. Good luck facing them in the pub afterwards. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be that guy that got hit by that ransomware, I don't think. It does remind me of how malware started out, though. The way, the way in which in sort of 1989, that sort of period, where it would just eject your CD tray or do something along the way. Or wipe all your files or format or your hard drive or, or put embarrassing words into your documents. So this isn't by yes. any means new, this sort of technique of pranking an individual. It's still not nice and definitely criminal. Thank you guys for, for talking about that one. But we need to move on to our next topic, um, which is Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. Now, we actually haven't spoken about Patch Tuesday for a while because we've sort of figured that they're all much of a muchness. Um, but the article we published last week was really popular. It so was. What, what do you think the deal is with the, these patches in April 2018 that we haven't seen for a long time? Well, maybe it was just that we, because we haven't written about Patch Tuesday that much lately, because we figured, well, it's just every month. But then we had that whole spectre slash meltdown that came out at the end of last year where there were flaws or problems with the way that the Intel and AMD chipsets themselves were used. And that led to this whole idea that the patches might terribly hamper performance and whatnot. Suddenly we had all this, oh, we need, to, we need to be a bit introspective about that and go and think whether this auto-patching is a great idea. So I think what was interesting to us this month, 65 vulnerabilities, 23 of them critical. There were some extra vulnerabilities and exploits available for Flash that needed patching. Is a month with 65 CVEs worse than one with 58? Is it better than one with 72? It doesn't, I guess it doesn't necessarily matter how many they are, it's the severity and to what extent that they're used. So if a vulnerability, for example, the one that was used within WannaCry, um, if that suddenly becomes of widespread use by a specific piece of malware that is very destructive, that one vulnerability is far more damaging than 60 vulnerabilities. I'd say, I'd say it depends on how those vulnerabilities are used and what they can do. It's not the size, it's what you do with them, Absolutely. as it were. In a way, you could say that 65 vulnerabilities patched in one month, you could argue it's better than 36, because it means somebody found more holes and fixed them all in one go. If you found no vulnerabilities, wouldn't you be more worried? you think, oh, they haven't been looking properly. That, yeah. I would. Are there no zero days available on this machine? So can I just take things back a step to basics. So in the article, John wrote about another Flash update. So for people that, that perhaps don't know, they know that Flash has, has issues, but, but why? Why do we need to patch Flash and why do people still have Flash? I guess the problem is not so much that there's something monstrously wrong with Flash these days, but that generally speaking, you don't need it. My understanding is Adobe wants to get rid of it completely by 2020 and they're desperately trying to phase it out because most browsers now have HTML5 built in. HTML5 can do pretty much everything Flash can do. Why have something that exposes you to potential security dangers that you don't need? So I don't think you do need Flash and the, the evidence I always offer for this is you don't get Flash for iOS, for iPhones, never have. Steve Jobs said no long, long ago. You don't get Flash on Android. And yet I've not ever had any problem watching YouTube videos or even watching BBC iPlayer or something like that on my phone. Would you agree, Matt? Like vote with your, vote with your feet? 
Yeah, yeah. So no, you're running if, if, if you've had a period of time of not using Flash, which I think all of all of us have done by having an Android device or an iPhone, what need do you have to ha- have it on your desktop? Uh, in which case, why introduce what could be an extra security flaw into your environment? It's one more thing that needs to be patched. It's one more technology that has its own equivalent of cookies and tracking and all of that stuff. Now, some browsers like Chrome and Microsoft Edge, they have Flash kind of built in. But you can go into the settings and say, I just don't want to use it. So and I'd recommend that you do that. I, I think the same thing then goes for um, a bit off topic, but the same thing then goes for any add-in that you've got in your web browser. If you don't need it, what's the point of having that within your organization? Absolutely. The other obvious fighting, sparring partner with Flash is Java. Yeah. Java in your browser, where hardly anybody actually uses it. And I can't think of a site that needs it anymore. If it's not there, it can't go wrong. Simple as that. Okay, that's great. Um, But we need to move on to our final topic. Now, it's something that's been all over the news recently. Facebook and its data sharing practices. (laughs) So, (laughs) why do you think that it's been in the news so much recently? You mean, given that Facebook's not exactly new, that there have been, people have been talking about privacy concerns on Facebook for 275 years, that we know that their business is about connecting people and letting them share with one another, why has it suddenly become a big deal? I suppose the latest scandal was, correct me if I get some of the terminology wrong here, it was a company called Cambridge Analytics. Mm -hmm. They had some nominal connection with the University of Cambridge, in England, which gave them a kind of credibility. And they wrote this app, what was it called? This is your digital life? That sounds about right, yeah. And the theory is that the people who are collecting this data are supposed to be play fair with it. These guys didn't. There seems to be some connection with Russia or something, and maybe this information was used to decide how to target people in the US elections, all sorts of fuss and bother. Everything just seems to have gone wrong, and suddenly people have maybe thought, my goodness, there's 10 years of questions that we probably should have asked long ago. So let's ask them all in one go. So maybe that's not a bad thing. So there's also been a lot in the news about people deleting their Facebooks. But our lives are so caught up in social media. What can our listeners do if they can't quite press that delete button? But what can they do if they're worried about their data? Well, if in doubt, don't give it out. Simple as that, isn't that it? That is a brilliant saying. If in doubt, don't give it out. Don't share your information too much, is that what you're saying? I can see the problem people have got with this whole Cambridge Analytics and the way they use Facebook data and the way they use this academic connection to sort of get people's trust when they didn't deserve it. And maybe people are worried about the fact that, oh, how could Facebook possibly let this happen? But that's the way the Facebook platform works. If you can't bring yourself to delete your Facebook account completely, you could just deactivate it. I don't think you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you do delete your, delete your Facebook account, good on you. That's one less place where you can accidentally share stuff you didn't mean to. The biggest change I would like to see people make is if you're into Facebook and you don't value privacy that much and you love sharing stuff, including sharing stuff about your buddies, stop Think, reflect, and stop sharing things about your and saying things about your friends online. If you know jolly well that if you ask them, do you mind if me sharing this like a photo? If you know jolly well that they'd say, no, I'd rather you didn't. So there's a lot to be said for moderation and there's a lot to be said for thinking about other people's privacy as well as your own. 
for instance, I've got some friends on Facebook that do tend to comment on, on quite a few of these public profiles with their opinions on certain things or, or just replying to uh, general information consensus quizzes online about yourself, which gives away a lot of per- personal information. There was one thing recently saying, what is your porn star name? And this is it's a ridiculous idea of saying that if you combine your uh, mother's maiden name with the name of the street that you grew up on, then you find out what is known as your porn star name. Which that, is a trick just to get your bank security question. Right? I, so I'm undecided on whether that particular instance where I saw it was a trick, but loads of people were commenting underneath saying, this is my mother's maiden name. This is the street I grew up on. Having said that, those bank security questions or security questions that work on that principle are pretty damn stupid, aren't they? Like, what was the first car you drove? I mean, if you're a youngster and you still got your first car, then it's whatever's been in the photographs for the last three years. In the modern era, if you live in a city and with good public transport, you might not have a car. So what are you going to answer? So when you get to those questions... In the real world, when the bank's asking you, my recommendation is use a password manager and your first car is H6 equals question mark 88 slash whatever the password manager comes up with. That way it doesn't matter if people know that the first car you drove was a Toyota. By the same token, I agree with you that it's hard to tell whether it's just somebody having fun or whether it's crooks doing a survey, which is exactly the sort of thing, really, that Cambridge Analytics were doing. They're doing this survey, and today they ask for your birthday. Tomorrow they ask for your national insurance number. The day after they want your home address. Each time it only feels like you're giving out a tiny bit of stuff. But for all you know, either it's the same guys, and they're just putting this all together, waiting till they hit the jackpot, or it's somebody doing this so they can sell the data for 50p a gigabyte on the dark web, and someone else will join all the dots it paints a very vivid picture doesn't it of an individual and and also uh the the app usage which you have on facebook shares quite a lot so there are app permissions associated to your facebook account and with each app you can specify how much you're sharing with that particular with a particular facebook app yeah we've published an updated article on naked security just recently in which we tell you how to go and review your your facebook settings and one of the key things we're saying to do is go into the section that lets you review what apps you've got and what permissions they have. Yeah. The same with Twitter. So it's not that's the thing that all this fuss you're saying about Facebook. Actually, you need to think about this for Twitter, for LinkedIn, for Google+, for Instagram, for Snapchat, for WhatsApp, all the groups where you may have these closed groups of friends and people you know. What goes around comes around, and if one of the people in your circle turns out to be rotten or a crook or a false identity or an app that's been installed by an account of somebody whose password was stolen, then who knows who you're giving that stuff to, no matter how innocent it seems now. Okay, thank you, Dirk. Um, I've just got to interrupt you now because time is running out. But just to to finish, can you repeat that saying that you said a moment ago? Matt, let's do it together. You ready? One, two, three. If If in in doubt, doubt, don't don't give give it it out. That sounded very corny, but it works. Corny's it? good. <laughs> good with corny. Thank you both for sharing your expertise with us, and thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, stay secure. As usual, folks, please visit us at nakedsecurity.sophos.com, where we lay bare the truth about computer security. Keep up with our podcasts on iTunes or via RSS. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. 
and enjoy this episode's playout music, which comes from London-based band Codices. This is a track called New Devices. Mm-hmm. 